Please be seated. Welcome. Please open your Bibles to the 119th Psalm, Psalm 119. This morning we'll be looking at verses 105 through 112. Um, the nun stanza or strophe. And as we go through Psalm 119, especially for those of you who may be new or visiting, Psalm 119 is an extended acrostic. It's the single largest chapter in the Bible, the longest psalm. And every eight verses begin with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It would be as though in English of eight verses where every line begins with A and then every line begins with B and so on. It shows order, symmetry, and it's to aid in memorization. And so we're alternating between a few weeks in Psalm 119 moving forward and the uh, epistle of James. And this morning we look at the noon strophe. And I think there's really one big idea here that I hope to encourage you to, and that is to commit yourself decidedly, firmly to the Lord and to following him obediently. That's what we're to see. In three sections in this psalm, we're to see the psalmist in a different context respond with commitment. He commits himself to keeping the Lord's statutes. He commits himself to following them to the end. We'll see reasons why such a commitment is good and right and the best possible thing for you. But let's begin by reading Psalm 119, verses 105 to 112. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept my freewill offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me but I do not stray from your precepts. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. Lord God, we rejoice that we are not left alone in this world, but that your word is a bright and shining lamp and light illuminates our path and way. We pray that you would give us hearts inclined to your word, rejoicing in your word. We might cling to Christ, cling to you to the very end. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we've been studying through this psalm, there have been highs and there have been lows. A few stanzas back, we were at a low point. It's when affliction first gets brought up. I've suggested to you that the psalmist who wrote this was likely outside of the land. The psalmist referenced foreign kings and rulers, enemies, little to no mention of the ceremonial worship. In fact, our stanza today has has about the only mention of it in the free will offering of praise, but it's an offering that doesn't require a tabernacle or a temple to make. And as the psalmist has dealt with both the lows of his affliction, more recently we came to a high, celebrating God's word. Look at verse 89 in that stanza. Forever, O Lord, 
your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. The psalmist has, has got a gasp of air, as it were, in seeing the glories and the goodnesses of God's word. Last week, we saw a celebration of the word in verses 97 to 104. Not a single request, just praise. Praise for God's word and an autobiography about how in response to that praise, he meditates on God's word. Today, I think he takes some of that hope and encouragement with him back into the fray. The affliction shows up again, and yet he's rejoicing. He's praising. I think the sight of glory that he saw in the last few stanzas is, is strengthening him up. So again, here we see his commitment and, and a model for us, our commitment of ourselves to the Lord. Let's look at it in three points. In response, so commit yourself to the Lord first in response to his gracious guidance. Commit yourself to the Lord in response to his gracious guidance. Verses 105 and 106. 105 probably being one of the better known verses in the Bible, especially if you've come up through our WANA program. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. So the psalmist responds with commitment, we see that in verse 106, to God's gracious guidance. And so here the word is likened to a lamp and to a light. To a lamp and to a light. It's a metaphor. And by referencing what it lightens, it gives us an idea of what it's for. It's a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And in the picture here, in the first instance, is immediate. When, when you're walking in the dark and you have a flashlight, you keep it down right in front of you, you want to make sure you don't trip over anything. So the light for his feet pictures immediate help, right where you're at, the precise place in life you are at, the, the specific issues you are dealing with. God's word gives immediate help for that. Um, you also probably know Proverbs 6.23, the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light. And the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. Now, again, what God's word is a light for is not to get the winning lottery ticket or even to get your best life now. Rather, the wisdom we're looking for is how to live. I've talked to people, especially in our recent political environment. It, it is difficult. It takes wisdom. It is hard to know how to act wisely, righteously, godly in this present evil age. It, it is difficult. Well, God's word gives you light for right where you're at, right what you're dealing with. I, I would suggest to you, whatever evil you face, whatever plight you might be in, this passage insists, God's given us a song to sing to him that insists, right where I am, right at my feet, God's word sheds light. It'll inform me how to understand what is going on and how to respond Immediate. Your word is a lamp to my feet. I think of the passage in James 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom in life's trials, ask God who gives generously to all. Now, I want to pause and, and make a, a prerequisite here. This, this is a promise of illumination for God's children, for those people who know Jesus Christ through faith, for those of us who've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, who've been adopted, forgiven, who've received God's spirit given to us that we might understand freely the things given to us. 
Um, if you are a Christian, if you're trusting in Jesus, if your sins are forgiven, you have his spirit within you, which makes another sub point I just want to touch on here. My pastor's pen for October will deal with this more fully, but this picture of the word as light to understand our immediate circumstances assumes the clarity of the word itself. As James Montgomery Boyce comments on this, the word is both clear and clarifying. God intends you to understand his word, because only through reading and understanding it can then you make sense of what's going on around you. The word is only light and illuminating to the extent that it's clarifying. Understanding scripture is not some priestly cast for only professionals. Well, it is priestly, but he's made us a kingdom of priests. You and I need to interpret God's word. You turn to it looking for truth and light. It's both clear and clarifying. This may even, this word picture, harken back to the exodus from Egypt where at night a pillar of fire led them, God leading his people. So the word is light, it illuminates, it clarifies, it shows you how to move immediately. And also, it's a light for my path. Now this links back to verse 104. Remember how the last stanza ended? I hate every false way. Well, therefore, I'm really concerned what the path that I'm on, because I want to be careful that I don't accidentally swerve into the false path, the false way. And here, your blank is it's comprehensive, so immediate and comprehensive. Not only does God's word give you clarity, it illuminates, helps you understand what's going on in your life right now, how to respond right now, but for your path, for the way of righteousness, for the way of pursuing Christ, God's word will continue. There's not going to be a place in that path you're going to get to that God's word will not illuminate, clarify, interpret, and instruct you. That's the clear implication. It's good right now, right here and right now, immediately, and it's good comprehensively. You think of Hebrews 5, 13, and 14. Everyone who lives on milk is unskilled with the word of righteousness since he is a child, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish evil from good. And throughout your life, you're going to be constantly weighing things up and down, sizing things up, holding them up to the word to understand them. That's how we grow and mature. So this is a great blessing. I mean, understand what this means in total. God's word given freely to us that you can understand because he's given you his spirit. Not that there isn't study involved and work involved, but you can make it your goal to understand what God has said so that you can then understand what's going on around you, that you might know how to act, how to live, how to respond, how to speak, what to do. And it's good for both right where you are now and your entire life. What a good and gracious gift is that? I mean, we live in a world where confusion is around us. We, we got doctors who don't know what a boy or a girl is. There is confusion on all sides. Our world is, is shifting and tumultuous, and we have light to understand where our feet sit, stand upon. Sorry, our feet don't sit, do they? Um, where our feet stand and the path where to go down. So trust in the sure guidance of the word of the Lord, and then in response, make a commitment of obedience to the Lord in response. 
That's how verse 106 responds. Because God has given him this sure light, the psalmist says, I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. Maybe an analogy might be my, if one of your children is going to go walk in the woods at night, probably not a good idea, but suppose they were, or you were to let them go out trick-or-treating or something, and you give them a nice high-powered, you know, 100, 500-loom flashlight. You might picture the, ch- the child in response thankfully saying, thank you, Dad, I'll be sure to use this everywhere I go. Conversely, how ungrateful the child would be if they just put it in their bag, don't even use it, get tripped up. So God's given us this lamp, this light. His response, I'm going to walk in it. His response, I'm going to keep your rules. I'm going to act and respond to what I see, which is exactly the same qualification James gives for asking for wisdom in faith, right? Don't be double-minded. Don't be inwardly divided. Come to God sincerely. Ask for wisdom. Ask for light. He'll graciously give it to you. Only those who come to God saying, what would you have me to do? Maybe I'll do it, are the ones who get nothing. So the psalmist responds rightly. We ought to respond rightly. He makes this oath. First, we see its confirmation. I have made and sworn an oath and confirmed it. What's, what's that reference there? Turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 27. It gives some little clarity here, what it means to make an oath and confirm it. At the end of Deuteronomy, there's a list of blessings and curses. And Deuteronomy 27 ends the section of curses and cursings. And we get some clarity on what it means to make an oath and to confirm it. Deuteronomy 27, 26. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people shall say, Amen. I think that's what he means here. I've I've committed, I've made a formal commitment, I've sworn an oath to keep your rules, and I've already begun to keep them. I've confirmed it in my doing, in my actions. If you resolve to follow Christ, if you resolve to obey God, you confirm it or deny it by what you do. So I think the psalmist is in essence saying, I I swore an oath, I made it a commitment that I would keep God's law and I've already begun to act upon it. I have confirmed it. It's confirmation and then it's content, it's content to keep your righteous rules. And again, that's the natural response. If we're looking to God for help, I want to know what's going on. I don't want to walk in darkness. I don't want to go down the path of death. I want to be on the path of life. And God graciously gives us the light and the lamp. Our right response is then, I'm going to walk in it. What you show me, I will do. What you reveal to me, I will act upon. So the first reason to commit yourself to the Lord is because he gives us such wonderful truth and guidance. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, the spiritual man's appraised by no one, but he understands all things. And I think the point he's getting at is the person with the spirit and the word is the only person really able to understand reality. What's going on around you? How to make sense of everything? What a tremendous gift. Paul goes on to say, for who has known the mind of the Lord, but we have the mind of Christ. You have access into... (laughs) the secret truth of ultimate reality. 
freely yours, generously given. Respond by committing yourself to God. The psalmist here making this oath, confirming it to keep your rules. So that's the first reason to commit yourself to the Lord. Second, verses 107 to 110, commit yourself to the Lord in the midst of your severe affliction. In the midst of your severe affliction. Verse 107 opens, I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept my free will offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. Now, the topic of affliction was first brought into Psalm 119 back in, I believe, uh, the strophe starting in 65. Verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray. And the affliction seems to be tied with slander and gossip of the insolent. Verse 69, in verse 75, it shows up again. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous. And then in faithfulness, you have afflicted me. And then, of course, I think the low point of the psalm, uh, the cough stanza, verses 81 through 88. And then we came up for a breath of air. And we looked at the glories of the word and the faithfulness of God. Well, now he's back in it. In fact, this is the strongest speaking of it yet. Heavy, severe, weighty affliction, not just any old affliction, severe affliction. And yet he commits himself to the Lord. So I, I, I want to see three things here. Depend on the Lord first for your strength, for your strength. In severe affliction, commit yourself to the Lord and look to him, ask from him. Here's where we get our three petitions in this section. They're right here. I'm severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Suffering, affliction, persecution, they're exhausting. We can feel worn away. Um, I, I think the psalmist actually has real life and death threats against him. If you're living under wicked rulers, slander, false accusation can lead to your death. He's had people slandering of him, smearing him with lies. And he's tired. He thinks he may even die. And, and the reason why I think this is important is that when we're scared, when we're frightened, when we're hard-pressed, that's when we're going to look to what we really trust in, to what we really believe in. And so I would urge you, in, in the day of trial, in the day of trouble, don't leave your first hope. We sang, we sang that earlier this morning. Don't go trust in money. Don't go trust in the power of man. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. I mean, the Psalms, turn to Psalm 103, just a few pages over. Psalm 103. A wonderful reminder here in the first five verses. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. He gives strength. 
He gives help. And I can think of nothing worse than entering into the vortex, entering into the, the trial, the time of suffering, the great affliction, and in that moment faltering in your faith and now having suffering on two fronts. One, whatever the particular affliction is, and separation from the Lord. That's precisely when you need his help. Precisely when you need his help. So don't become distracted when you become afraid. When you become distressed, cleave even ever more closely to the Lord. He cries out, I am severely afflicted. Oh, Lord, give me life. Give me life. I want to read one other passage to you um, that I believe you know from Isaiah 40. Wonderful, wonderful passage. Here we go. Have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The, the psalmist knows that God has made promises like this to his people. And so he calls on the Lord to keep his word. He doesn't look to other deliverance. In his severe affliction, O oh Lord, give me life. Strengthen me according to your word. You've said you would do it, Lord. Oh, Lord, do it. So cleave, commit yourself to the Lord in the midst of your affliction, depending on him for your strength. Also for your joy. Isn't it remarkable that right after mentioning severe affliction, the very next thing on his mind is praise. Oh, Lord, accept my free will offerings of praise, oh, Lord, and teach me your rules but you're severely afflicted, yes. And I want to praise the Lord in my severe affliction. The free will offering were offerings that were spontaneous because you wanted to. The, the, the law of Moses has particular offerings for particular things, but there's a category called the free will offering. Has the Lord blessed you? Are you particularly thankful to the Lord? Did you just, it's on your heart to make an offering to him? You can bring a free will offering. So when he says, his free will offering of praise, I think it means something like a spontaneous, genuine raising of joy and praise to the Lord. This isn't duty. This isn't even spiritual disciplines, as good as those can be. This is spontaneous. This is a free will offering. In the midst of severe affliction, rising up from his heart is praise to God. It, it's, consider this is even more remarkable. What's his concern? What's his, what's his petition? He's concerned that his spontaneous free will offering of praise may not be acceptable to God, right? That's, that's his concern. What humility this displays. I don't know about you, but I don't often give much thought to whether or not God would find my praise acceptable. 
particularly if I'm suffering and if I think I'm even being remotely faithful in suffering, I can tend to feel like Job. The psalmist is faithful. He's committed himself to the Lord. The psalmist is suffering and he's faithful in his suffering and yet he doesn't waltz into the living God's throne room. His concern, oh Lord, might my praise to you be acceptable. That's humility. That's reverencing the living God. And it humbles me to read that and consider this because the Bible makes it clear God is not pleased by all praise. Listen to uh, Proverbs 15, 8. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. Wicked could go to the temple and they could outwardly look like they're engaged in true religion and they could offer up a blameless sacrifice without blemish. It's an abomination to God. Or perhaps Psalm 66, 18, the psalmist confesses, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. If you're holding sin inwardly, your prayers may very well be bouncing off the roof. Or even 1 Peter 3, 7, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. We would do well to give thought to whether or not our prayers and our praise is pleasing to God. If I'm not loving my wife as I ought, my prayers are being hindered. But we don't often think that way. We think God, if anything, is lucky to get our praise. I mean, we think that you alone are worthy of my praise. I got this valuable praise, and I'm going to give it to you today. The psalmist rather says, O oh Lord, accept my free will offerings of praise. May my praise be acceptable to you. <laughs> remarkable humility, remarkable fear of the Lord. And then his third petition, teach me your rules. Depend upon the Lord for your strength. Depend upon the Lord for your joy. Depend upon the Lord for your wisdom. For your wisdom, teach me your rules. This goes back up to the very first verse of this section. If we've got such inexhaustible light for where we are and for our path, I want to see through it. I want it to illumine more and more of my life, my heart. I want to know the truth. Be set free by the truth. He's looking to God for his wisdom. And again and again, this, this is a request that we've seen many, many times in this psalm. It's one of the dominant themes. Verse 12, teach me your statutes. Verse 26, teach me your statutes. Verse 29, teach me your law. Verse 33, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes. Verse 64. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. Verse 68. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The psalmist, this entire psalm has been periodically, Lord, teach me more, teach me more, teach me more. That'd be a great prayer for us to pray. And again, it shows dependence. It's assuming that without God's help and his aid, I can't understand. I need God to teach me. I mean, what a privilege God can teach you. 
Yes, Christ has given his church teachers in its body to help to, to, to in some sense be like a catalytic converter. But God promises in you through his spirit to teach you. Seek him to do that. Ask him to do that. Commit yourself to the spiritual disciplines of reading the word. You've got an inexhaustible source of light and you've got a living God who's happy to teach you. What privilege. So he's in affliction and he's in part concerned with his affliction. Oh Lord, give me life. And in the midst of the affliction, joy is spontaneously coming up in his heart. And he's concerned that it would be acceptable to the Lord. And he's asking the Lord for more wisdom. When you've got enemies, when you've got affliction, it's harder to know how to act. Okay. Next, in the midst of your severe affliction, remain faithful. Remain faithful, even in the face of of extreme danger, even in the face of extreme danger. I hold my life continually in my hand, which is a way of saying it's touch or, touch or go. I, I could literally die. Um, we use Daniel as an example. He may even be the author of this psalm. He has enemies and they, they tell the king what he's up to and he ends up in a lion's den. He's holding his life in his hand. And that's, that's again, we're going to find out what you trust. It's one thing to say you trust the Lord. It's one thing to say you trust his word. But when the stakes are high, when you could lose or gain all, whose wisdom do you trust? Whose help do you look for? Well, he makes it clear, I hold my life in my hand continually but I do not forget your law. I do not forget your law. He remains faithful even in extreme danger. Also notice, sometimes when we've got danger, problems, facing the loss of a job, severe illness, other things. I mean, one of the things that's beautiful about the Psalms is sometimes they leave it ambiguous so we can plug in our own situation in life. We can be so distracted by the thing we're afraid of that God, his word, his commands, his promises, they fly from our mind. He literally realizes the, the peril he faces could end in his death today. And he does not forget God's law. He commits himself to the Lord. Remain faithful even in the face of wicked enemies. Wicked enemies. The wicked have laid a snare for me. They're trying to trap him. And that's exactly what happens in the book of Daniel. They get the king to make the edict for no one to pray. And they trap Daniel, or so they think they do. And there are other snares and traps. Wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. Even if that means you walk into the trap as Daniel did, yep. Extreme danger and peril is not an excuse to bend the rules. It's the time to trust the Lord and to shine. Um, pray, pray for the Christians in Afghanistan and pray that in their extreme peril, they may not stray from the Lord's precepts, that they would walk in integrity. God is faithful.
And you, whatever trouble you're facing, don't compromise your integrity just because you're afraid. Trust the Lord. Walk in his precepts. Commit yourself to him. Let him deliver and vindicate you. Remain faithful even in the face of extreme danger and wicked enemies. Third, Psalm closes on a positive note. Commit yourself to the Lord in pursuit of true joy and contentment. Commit yourself to the Lord in pursuit of true joy and contentment. What I'm counseling you to is going to further your own joy, your own satisfaction. It may be hard in the short term, but it is the best possible outcome for you. The psalmist models this. We've already seen that even in extreme Severe affliction, joy is welling up within him. Here, verse 111 and 112. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. To the end. Two points here. First, find your satisfaction in the Lord and in his word. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. If you find your satisfaction in God's word, as opposed to temporal things, then you find your satisfaction in something that cannot be taken from you, something that will not alter. Look back to verse 89 and 90, something that even when you die and go to heaven will remain with you. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. If you can get your heart to be satisfied and rejoice in God's word, you will have a delight that can never be taken from you. You will have an inheritance or a heritage. It is an enduring inheritance. That's the blank. Your testimonies are my heritage forever. And it is a very present joy. Notice the word for, by the way, for they are the joy of my heart. You get the idea that the, God's word is his forever because he rejoices in it. Because he rejoices in it. And again, he's got enemies, he's got peril, he's got traps, but he has a joy and a satisfaction in something that cannot be taken from him. If you put your joy in your health, then when the test comes back with the bad results, your joy is lost. If you put your joy and your security here in this life, then when inflation comes, when you lose your job, your joy is gone. If you put your joy in your family, ultimate joy, I mean, if you put your joy in in the Lord of the word and the word of the Lord, because I believe he's rejoicing in it because of who it's from. Notice the psalm again is always talking to God. It's not God's word abstractly, but the word the God I love has spoken to me. That is what I delight in. Like a, like a lover may read and reread love letters because of who they come from, the compassion and passion they express. Our God loves us. He sent his son to die on the cross for us, and he has spoken to us and given us light. And those who love him love his spoken word, his written word. Because it comes from the God they love. Let me end with verse 112. 
I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. And what does he mean here? Your blank here I put is shepherd your heart. Shepherd your heart. Now, last week I closed with the point that you can't make yourself love what you don't love. You can't delight in what you don't delight in. And you can't hate what you don't hate. And if, if we are to have right affections, so that verse 104, we hate every false way, but verse 97, we love his law, well, what do we do? And I said we're, we're powerless directly to affect our heart. Well, it would seem as though verse 112 contradicts that. Psalmist says, I incline my heart. Well, I'll say a couple things to that. The first, even though we cannot directly reach in and affect our heart, I think there are things we can do to lead it, to incline it, this is really, in some sense, the task of the Christian life. Um, Jonathan Flavel has a book called Keeping the Heart, and it's, I, I commend it to you. Excellent, excellent Puritan book. And he's focusing that really the job of the Christian, our job in faith, is to make sure that our heart does not get seduced to lesser glories, to lesser goods, that our heart remains delighting in loving God, hating sin, loving believers, loving God's word, and then doing the things we can do indirectly to shepherd, lead, and incline our heart. That's the task. The danger is that over time I stop hating every false way and I actually find some of them kind of appealing. That I stop delighting in God's word and become bored with it. And in that task, we are powerless to directly affect it. I mean, what I mean is this. The part of me that loves the praise of man, I can't just turn it off. I can't just make a decision. You know what? It's stupid to fear men and worship their praise. I'm going to stop doing that. It doesn't work that way. I'm powerless to directly change my heart. So how then do you incline your heart to perform the Lord's statutes forever to the end. Notice the parallel again. I have your word forever. Therefore, my observation of your word and my commitment to you will match and be forever. Right? You see, you see the parallelism there? Your testimonies are my heritage forever. They'll never leave me. They're mine forever. Therefore, I'm inclining my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. My commitment to you, my obedience to you, will be proportional, or at least I will endeavor to make it proportional to the gift of your satisfying word to me. So I'm going to make three suggestions on how to shepherd your heart. The psalm's already given us one. Keep your finger here in verse 112 and turn back to verse 36. I would suggest to you that the first way the psalmist inclines his heart is by asking the Lord to do it. By asking the Lord to do it. Nearly a hundred verses earlier in this psalm, he asks this, Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. So even the psalm recognizes this isn't an activity you can do sovereignly. And I think the first way you incline your heart to God's testimonies is by begging, appealing, asking the Lord to do it. Just like he's done here. So your first blank, ask the Lord to change your heart. That's how you can, how do I incline my heart? This is one of the most common prayers I pray to the Lord. Lord, would you, would you alter my heart? Would you change my desires and my affections so I might love you more? I might hate the sin I struggle with more. I might, I might desire 
you and your word and your pleasure more. Again and again and again. Just what every Sunday I ask the Lord to open our eyes so we might see things in his word. Ask the Lord. He's already modeled this for us. Before he ever says he's done it, he asks the Lord to do it. How do you incline your heart? First and foremost, ask the Lord to do it. That's how you do it. Ask the Lord to do it. We have this example in other passages as well. Psalm 141.4. Do not let my heart incline to any evil way, to busy myself with wicked deeds in the company with men who work iniquity. Second, remove competing desires and distractions. A parallel passage that uses the same language is Joshua's call to Israel at the end of Joshua. I, I think this often gets misunderstood. Where Joshua says, as for me and my house, we're to serve the Lord. Israel, after taking possession of the land, the conquest of Canaan, still have idols. And three times Joshua tells them to get rid of their idols. And in one of them, he says this, Joshua 24, 23. Then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. I mean, you get the idea is this. What's preventing them from inclining their heart to the Lord, the God of Israel? These other gods. These lesser glories, these lesser desires. If you want to incline your heart to the Lord's testimonies, remove the competing desires, whatever they might be. They can be overtly wicked, or as Hebrews 12.1 names them, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely. So some things cling that are sin, some things simply are weights. If you find your heart delighting more in the score of the game than in God's word, maybe take a break for a while from watching the game until your heart's desiring what it should desire in right proportion. Remove competing desires. That's what Joshua says. Put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord. And finally, as we've seen again and again and again and again and again and again in this psalm, and I'll, we will be singing our closing songs so the worship team can get ready here in just a second, read and meditate on God's word. And th think of it this way. Faith, even if you don't see it with your eyes, even if you don't experience it, faith says God's word is glorious. If, God, if, if I'm to take God at his word, then this is light, and life, this is better than riches. Oh no, I, I freely admit there are days I don't amen that inwardly. But faith takes that. And when you find your heart not inclined to God's word, what you can do is get rid of the distractions. And you can ask God to change your heart. And then, and I think I mentioned this last week, like Jacob wrestling with the angel, I'm not gonna let you go to you give me a blessing. If this is glorious, and I believe it is, and if my inability to see glory in it just speaks of my corruption and hardness of heart, then I'm not going to remove this from in front of me in my sight until God shows me something beautiful, so God shows me some glory in it. Because I'm taking God at his word. I'm not doing it self-righteously. This, this is part of where spiritual disciplines can be a really good thing. Because you get up, you don't feel like reading your Bible. You don't feel like talking to the living God. And faith says, but it's, he is worthy 
and his life and light. And so we say, okay, I don't feel it, but I believe. Lord, open my eyes to behold wondrous things in your word. Lord, incline my heart to your word and to your statutes. The psalmist, even in severe affliction, commits himself to the Lord. He does not deviate. And he shows us that we should do this in response to God's gracious gift of guidance and light. We should do this because of the help God gives in affliction. He gives life. He gives joy. He gives wisdom. And we should do this in pursuit of our own joy and satisfaction in his word. And ultimately, we can trust him to be faithful with that. I'm going to call the worship team up. We're going to sing our closing song. He will hold me fast.